Well, today we do want to mention it is Mother's Day, and as I said just a moment ago, if um, we recognize the church is a unique thing, that we value women, um, young, old, single, married, widowed, um, mothers, non-mothers, we value women in the life of the church. And so this morning, we want to just invite any woman who is here uh, to stand, and uh, we just want to acknowledge you, and then I also want to remind you, as you leave, there's a gift for you in the foyer. So if you were a, a woman here, would you just stand so we could celebrate you today? I realize that's awkward. If you were at home watching online, you could just stand in your living room, and we were cheering for you too, you know? Um, you didn't have to get dressed up, though, so it was like a benefit, right? Have you ever found yourself trying to fit in somewhere? Like trying to fit in with a group of people at a particular place at a particular time? I mean, um, have you ever thought maybe you just need a fresh start? And so maybe you had a fresh start. Maybe you went to a new school, like you moved when you were a kid. Uh, maybe you switched from like elementary school to middle school or middle school to high school. Or you went on to college and you thought, hey, these people don't really know me or all of them don't know me. So I can be anyone I want to be. I can change who I am. Or maybe you're someone who you, um, when you're with particular groups of people, you act particular ways. And when you're with different people, you act completely different ways. Now, I want to be clear, because sometimes when you say it, like, oh, that's so terrible. Well, no, the way you act with your friends, you can act a little bit, you can be more honest with some areas. You may have to be more guarded with certain people. That's fair and true. That's normal. That's actually probably appropriate behavior. Um, there are honest things you share with your spouse or with a, your best friend that you're not going to share publicly, which th- that's okay. That's not being a different person. That's just recognizing, recognizing and having wisdom about where we are and what we're doing. I'm talking about how when the essence of who you are changes when you're with different people. Because that ultimately changes us. And we're not really sure who then we are. Right? This is a great season to use this analogy, but basically we're living a life that is masked. I know, right? Like, really bad joke, but I don't mean it as a joke. I'm actually serious. Have you noticed how, when people are wearing masks, that sometimes when you meet someone for the first time and they were wearing a mask, when they don't have it on, you don't recognize them? Because you got used to, like, eye, hair, mask, you know, height, like all those things, and then they take the mask off and you're like, I don't know who that is. The opposite is true as well, right? You run into someone and you used to know them really well, but they're wearing a mask and you're like, ah, I think I know that person, but I don't want to say hello because I've done that too many times to say hello to someone I don't really know. But that's kind of how we live sometimes. Sometimes we leave a mask on because we're afraid that who we are is not good enough or we know who we are is not good enough. And so we're not sure how we want to live in the midst of that. We wear masks in all kinds of ways, right? Some of us wear masks on social media. We post pictures that are awesome and sweet places and our kids are perfect. And man, don't you just wish you could have a family like that? Don't you wish you were as cool and as popular and as incredible? And don't you wish you had as many likes as they do? Only how often do we find that if you were to go meet that person, it literally is just a highlight reel of their life. Those moments are few and far between. There's all kinds of other moments that are just 
broken and painful and hurting? It's a mask. We wear it. But here's the thing. Sometimes there are particular groups of people and particular places that we want to fit in and we should want to fit in because they're good. And we want to learn how to mold and be shaped in those environments. Like here's an example. Um, if you're going to the gym to exercise and you've never really gone before, watching and listening to other people in there might save you lots of injury. That's probably a good place to mold to others who know what they're doing. If you started a new job and it's centered around the idea of being team, maybe you should be a part of the team. If not, you won't have that job in the future. Maybe if you become part of a family, you should figure out what are the practices of that family, engage in those, all the ones that are healthy, those kind of things. You help create a culture that's good. And so you find if it's good, then, then being shaped into that place or that people or that group is a good thing. But all these things leave us asking this question over and over and over again. What shapes us over time? Who are we? What are we? And the truth is, whether you and I want to acknowledge this or not, most of us will be shaped by things outside of us. That's kind of how we are actually shaped. But the things that influence us, the things that impact us, the things that happen around us, we don't get to always pick what those are. Sometimes we do, but often we don't. But we are shaped by them nonetheless. And so the question for you and I is, what will be the biggest shaper of our life? What will shape us the most? What will we be the most? And that leads to a second question. How will we shape others? Because we all shape others. At least if you're a part of anyone else, you help to shape them as well. And the question is, how are you doing that? How are we being shaped and how are we shaping others? I actually believe this is a part of what John is trying to get across in his letter in 1 John chapter 5. It's kind of an obscure passage at first glance. You're going to go, really? You're talking about shaping others and identity, and then you're going to talk about this? Yep. Uh, it's a weird, weird segue, I know, but bear with me as he writes these words. And I think for us, as he spent time with Jesus, he wants us to know who Jesus is and how Jesus might shape us if we allow him to. Here is what John writes. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. John writes these words, and if you're like me, you're like, oh, okay, that makes some sense and no sense all at the same time time. You're talking about identity, right? Like, I didn't see much about identity in that, right? I, I'm kind of confused by that. Well, there was this thing in the early church that happened, um, and there's a thing called Gnosticism, which you're like, what is that? And it's spelled with a G, yep, 
both those are true. Weird word, weird thing. But here's what they basically understood Gnosticism to be. This idea that um, body and spirit were separate. And it spread from this idea that Jesus was fully divine. Like he was God for sure. But he wasn't man. Right? He wasn't really a person. He didn't have flesh and body. Like he was just a, just just kind of a spirit. He just like looked like he was man. And so this whole kind of theology centered around this understanding, this idea that the body and the spirit were separate, that the flesh was kind of bad and the spirit was good. And so in other words, what my body did, my spirit didn't have to do. And what my spirit did, my body didn't have to do is this idea that, so if you, if you studied much like Greek philosophy or you've studied like some of the Roman culture, you would understand they understood like body and soul as separate. Like read Plato, there, the uh, philosopher. So your body is here and your spirit's up here and they're two different worlds. And so if that's true, then we can live however we want to live because my body doesn't cause my spirit to do anything. In other words, I am two entities. And so many of us even think this way about the world now, right? We'll say things like um, my soul, right? But if we're going to be like fair to the scriptures, when I say soul, I don't mean like my spirit. I mean my whole being. Body, mind, soul. Now, I don't use the word soul often because there's a misconception. It's like the idea that it's up here and our body's down here. That's not how we understand soul biblically. We would say it is the essence of who we are. All of us. The whole self. And so like, well, okay, so why is this a problem? Well, what happened in the early church, and it happens in our day, I don't get to that, but like, that we would say, well, I can live how I want to live. And so there's this weird sexual ethic that would develop in some fringe parts of the church. I can do what I want with my body, and it doesn't matter because it's not connected to my spirit, and God saves my spirit because Jesus wasn't really man. In other words, it's, I'm not defined by my actions, but only by my spirit. That leads to all kinds of problems, and you're like, well, um, what's that mean for us? Great. Gnosticism, problem in the early church kind of addressed it, kind of moved on for it. But what if I would argue today, I don't think we have. Here's what I mean. Gnosticism plays out in our lives in different ways. We try to live with masks on. We try to live as separate people, as one part of my body or one part of my person can do this, and one part can do this, and so I can live as two unique people I can wear a different mask in whatever sphere I am in, but what we find in that is that's not who Jesus was, and it's not who he invites us to be. What if, what if we really are called to have one self, one soul, one person, one unique thing that defines us? What if that is how we are called to live? This is what John wants us to understand. It literally can change and reshape who we are. So here's what he writes. He says this. The first line says, um, everyone who believes, and you're like, oh, so it just takes belief. Well, here's the better way to translate this. Everyone who keeps on believing, it is a continued action. In other words, it's a way of life. I will live this way. I will continue to live this out. This is what we're invited into. And so this is what, what John writes. Believing in Jesus leads to us being born of God. The idea that we are re shaped, made new, recreated. And so what we find is this invites us into a unique family. 
fitting we would talk about that on Mother's Day. Because normally on Mother's Day, I talk about some weird thing in the Bible, and you're all like, gosh, can he pick something better for Mother's Day? You know, like one year it was a prostitute being killed. I'm like, gosh, that was really good for Mother's Day, right? I, I, sorry, um, I don't pay attention to when Mother's Day is. Whoops. Um, it's not like a Christian holiday. It's a good thing. I value women. It is in the preaching schedule. It's not high on my list. Um, but what we find is this is an invitation to this unique family that we're invited into a family. And so what does it look like? John writes, well, we're to be a loving family. We're to love one another. We're to be invited into this unique way of life. And so he says these things. Um, how do we know that we're his children and we love him? Well, we love his child. We love his children. What does that look like? Um, what's loving God, right? Well, how do we love the Father? Well, we, we spend time in prayer. Um, we read the scriptures. We commit to trying to follow the life and teachings and actions of Jesus. They're all good things, but um, John says something over and over and over again in his letters. In the Gospel of John, he says this, that love for God is unwavering devotion to God's commands. I don't know if you know this, but people naturally love their parents. They do. Now, some of you are going, I've got some bad parents. Like, I said they naturally do. It doesn't mean over time they can't be pushed away from. But have you noticed, like, their kids, they have, like, a bad mom or bad dad. They really want their mom or dad to be good. Have you noticed that? You ever met a young child who you know their parent is just worthless? And they so desperately long for that parent's attention and attraction and affection and love. Kids want to be loved by their parents. It's kind of how we're created. What God's saying through John here is, it's kind of how the people of God ought to be. They should just want to be loved by the parents and saying, live in a way, they obey his commands in a way that, that we know that we are loved. That's why Jesus says the church is this unique place, this unique people. I mean, if I, were, I quoted it earlier, but I'll say it again. Who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Those who do the will of my father. So in other words, sometimes we do have bad parents. I hope that's not true for you, but I know for some of us it is. But here's where the church comes in. Jesus says this, this words, these words are not flippant. Who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Those who do the will of my father. In other words, there is a family people are invited into regardless of what their parents are like or regardless of their parents are even around. A unique people. But what defines this unique people? This is what John wants to understand. These, these unique people that you're invited into that, that maybe you say today, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. I'm not even sure I believe in this. Well, here's who this unique people should be. I'm not saying we always are, but this is who we should be. We should be this. Um, people follow God's commands. Well, which commands? Um, John says again and again uh, this. He says this. Obedience is the only proof of love. Obedience is the only proof of love. Well, you're like, some of you are like, so you're like right now just got a list and you're like all these rules, all these laws, you follow all these things because I'm giving you a list for this. But that's not how John defines love. By a list of rules. It's not why, how he finds the command that we're supposed to call that obedience is found in following the law of love. 
And so what does he look like that? I mean, what we find all throughout John's writings is this, that love of God and love of others are inseparable. I'm going to say that again because that's probably as good as it's going to get today. Love of God and love of others is inseparable. So I cannot say I love God and not love others. It literally is impossible to love God and not love other people. So what command do we obey? We love God and love other people. But what about when they, we love God and we love other people. But what if I don't, we love God and we love people. So the question we ask in our daily life, is this loving? Is love modeled in my action or my activity? If it's not, then I probably shouldn't do it. Because how do I show that I love God? By obedience to his commands. What's his command? That I would love him and I would love people. Love acts. Love is activity. Living in love is the call of the followers of Jesus. Living in love is the call of the followers of Jesus. Love is the overflow of our life. Love requires others to be lived out. It cannot be done in isolation alone. In fact, um, we kind of asked the question, what's love look like? I, I love, I've, I have two Bob Goff quotes today. He wrote a book called um, Everybody Always and Love Does. They're helpful if you want to talk about what does some practical love look like. I mean, the stories are kind of crazy because you're like, can any one person really do this? But when you're a corporate attorney who made a lot of money at one point in your life, you can do all the stuff he actually writes about. But here's what he says. We make loving people a lot more complicated than Jesus did. Every time I try to protect myself by telling somebody about one of my opinions, God whispers to me and asks about my heart. Why are you so afraid? Who are you trying to impress? Am I really so insecure that I surround myself only with people who agree with me? When people are flat wrong, why do I appoint myself the sheriff to straighten them out? And in this line, burning down others' opinions doesn't make us right. It makes us arsonists. I'm going to say that line again because that was really good. I wish I had written it. Burning down others' opinions doesn't make us right. It makes us arsonists. And so it leads us back to the same question I've already asked. What does love look like? And then John writes these words. His commands are not burdensome. Like, I don't know, John. Like, have you tried to love everyone? Have you tried that? It is really, really hard. I don't know how he says it's not burdensome. I'm like, well, that's impossible. Have you done it? Because it's really hard to love some people. I mean, okay, I can love pretty much everyone. I don't like some of you. No, um, that's where we would just find the difference of like and love, right? Loving means I'll do anything for the sake of the other, regardless of whether I even like them. That's what love looks like. It's not burdensome, not heavy. Okay, not heavy is not equal to easy. In fact, um, not heavy might be helpful. Remember a text we referenced last week where Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Are we entrusting it to him? Are we trying to do it all in our own strength? And maybe this way is helpful to think about it. There is nothing too large or too heavy for love. Right? Some of you in this room have, have been or are married. Um, when you're in that infatuation stage in a relationship, um, you would have done anything. You would have gone anywhere. There was nothing too grand to show your love. And if there was, then you didn't do it right, right? Like you would do anything for that person. That's what love looks like. It says there's no place I wouldn't go, no thing I wouldn't do. That's what love looks like. This is the invitation we're all called to live out of. That when we love that way, there is nothing too heavy for love to carry. And then he says this weird phrase, everyone born of God overcomes the world. Well, what in the world is the world? It's systems. It's things that draw us into separated lives, to live masked with compartmental lives. It's the belief that we are not whole persons, that we can live disconnected. In fact, and I would say it this way, the world is better understood as principalities and powers, not people. So how do we overcome that? We do it together. John's writing to unique people at church. Churches live this particular way. You do it together. You were shaped together collectively in the unique image of God that he created us. And so he says we can have victory over even our faith, which is a weird way to say, but we find that together we have even greater victory than we do alone. That's what he's inviting us into. And so it's this idea that believing in Jesus, this continued belief in Jesus as the son of God, leads us to the place that we overcome even the world. In other words, all the systems that are broken, our fears of social media falling up short, right? It's our fears of not being good enough for this group of people. It's our fears, all those things, trying to live compartmentalized life. We overcome all those things through the resurrection of Jesus and finding this new life, this new creation that we are called to be. And I want to be clear about what belief is. Belief is not just cognitive recognition. It's not just like, oh, I believe that. Good. That's not what John or any of the gospel writers are trying to get across, that we would just believe because belief requires this ongoing activity. Belief is not passive. Belief invites us to a holistic recognition that our whole self, or back to the idea of the soul, that our whole being is wrapped up in this because this belief impacts how we live because love is an activity. But if you'll believe in a, in a way that changes how you live, that impacts everything you do, you'll find that you can overcome even the world, all the systems that lead to brokenness in your life. God will help you to overcome. And there's this weird line we're going to get back to about water and blood, but I'm going to kind of skip it for now. But I want us to recognize this because there's this, little, this weird little line about truth and spirit at the end of this text. And so what does that mean for us? It means just simply this. Jesus is the Christ as the Son of God. Jesus, the man that was fully God and fully human, is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who is the rightful king, who is also the Son of God. So back to this weird thing about water and blood, right? I told you I'd talk about this. So it's, it's kind of a weird 
weird text, right? There's some things about the Bible you're like, yeah, that's really kind of confusing. What in the world are they talking about here? Um, so maybe this is helpful. So water and blood is this idea that we look at two distinct moments in the life of Jesus, moments that were shaped shaping to him, but also shaping to us as his followers. Here's those two moments. The one, the water, is the idea that, remember when Jesus was baptized? This moment, this beautiful scene, and the heavens open up, and this voice comes and says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. It's God's affirmation that Jesus is who he says he is. It's also the moment right before he goes off into the wilderness, so he's like full of this great spiritual moment, fully divine, and he goes off into temptation. So it doesn't mean that just because God's present that we don't deal with temptation. So, so the water is this recognition that you and I are invited into the same thing that Jesus participated in, this baptism, this being made new, this invitation to recognize that there is something human about God that's also divine, this invitation to kind of be made new, to be cleaned. And that's kind of the spiritual part, right? Um, but then there's this blood part. Right, we said fully divine, spirit, got it. Fully man, I don't know about that, right? Well, except this is where John is writing, but do you know about the crucifixion? That somehow this one that we say is fully divine, like if he was just fully divine, then the crucifixion is worthless. But I saw, another saw, that in the death of Jesus, the blood of God was poured out in a way he died. And he was a person. And he was real. And so here's what I want to say to you and I in that. That this is an invitation for us to recognize that Jesus, there was something so unique about him that he was holistic, that he was connected to the Father as divine. But he was one of us in his death. So the water and blood to be shaped in not a Gnostic kind of way that can compartmentalize or separate aspects of who we are, but recognizes that, that this is the ethic that we are called to live, an ethic of love, because it is rooted in particular practices that shape us. These practices, like Jesus, these practices were water and blood. We'll talk about them in a few moments as baptism and table. See, the way of life that Jesus invites us into is dismissive of the compartmentalizing of our lives. You don't get to be one person here and one person there. You may be a confused person, but in the eyes of God, you are a singular person. And so this invitation is not to an escape, this Gnostic view of like my body and soul are separate, so my soul gets to go some weird place. That's not how that works. But this idea that God wants to redeem all that we are, the whole essence of our being. But it comes back to this. We are shaped by events and things that we participate in. We are, right? You, everyone, your family has unique things that your family does that if we watch, we're like, that's kind of weird. Right? My family too, right? We all have that. There's this thing that we do as families, whatever they are. Like some of you have Mother's Day plans and you've done the same thing for 50 years. You're going to do it again today. Like that's what we do. Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, you have plans that this is what we do. And so the question is, what are the places and events that most shape us and have most shaped us? What are those things? Now in truth, for some of us, it requires some pretty honest Reflection. To acknowledge some things that have shaped us that maybe shouldn't have. 
It requires work to see that we've been shaped by stuff that maybe at the end of the day we wish hadn't shaped us. And it leads to another question. So is that the stuff that we want to have shaped us? So what I think is unique about the local church. So I've said for years and will continue to say until something dramatically changes. um, As a pastor, I probably realistically have at best 30 minutes a week Try to, try to help form us to be a unique people, shaped theologically in the image of God as people who are followers of Jesus. 30 minutes, that's about it, really. If you watch the daily devotions, I get another 15, right? Um, if you watch one of our staff, that's another total 10. So 25 minutes. So let's say an hour a week of that. Let's say you're a part of a small group that meets for one hour a week. That's two hours a week if you include the whole service on Sunday morning. Maybe we get you to two and a half if we're lucky. The average person watches four and a half hours of TV a day. What shapes us? Are we more shaped by SportsCenter or Fox News or MSNBC or Good Morning America or HGTV? I, I don't know. What shapes us? Is it our social media feed? Or are we actually shaped in the image of God as his people? What is it that we're allowing to be the most formative things in our life? And this is why it requires for you and me for us to be reflective. And ask the question, what shapes us? I didn't say I like the question always. I just think you and I need to ask it of our own self. No one else. Our own self in that. So here's why I ask that. It's so easy to be disconnected from God and from one another in the world in which we live. It's easy to live a compartmentalized life. It is so difficult for us to be connected in ways that shape us, but the church offers unique practices that can and should shape us. One of them we celebrated together on Easter Sunday. Celebrated baptism. To watch five people get baptized and to watch this public declaration. And here's the cool thing about baptism. Like some of you go, I want to get baptized. Well, here's the great thing about baptism. I mean, an awful thing. The church can say no, by the way. It's the church's recognition of God's work in your life. It's the church celebrating what God is doing in someone's life. It is a corporate event. It is not just your personal event. Although it is that, it is much, much more than that. It is to be shaped collectively as a unique people who are reflecting the image of God. In fact, um, way things shape us. So, so years ago, a guy named Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Outliers. And in that book, Outliers, he talked about this idea of the 10,000 hour rule. Maybe you've heard of the 10,000 hour rule. Um, the idea that if you do something for 10,000 hours, you can get really good at it, basically. Like almost exceptional at it. It takes 10,000 hours to be exceptional at anything. So he talked about athletes and 10,000 hours of practice and musicians and whatever it is, but 10,000 hours. It's a lot, by the way. Do the math on that. Start figuring out how many years that is. What if you and I, what if we invested that in each other? What if we invested that in our spiritual life that we wanted God to so shape us that, not that you're going to be perfect at spirituality, but that you're going to be so shaped by the practices and the community of faith that it would be the most shaping thing in your life and in mine. You see, Followers of Jesus practice the ways of Jesus. Followers of Jesus practice the ways of Jesus. I told you I had a second Bob Goff quote. This is it. 
Jesus talked to his friends a lot about how we should identify ourselves. He said it wouldn't be what we said we believed or all the good we hoped to do someday. Nope. He said we would identify ourselves simply by how we loved people. It's tempting to think there's more to it, but there's not. Love isn't something we fall into. Love is someone we become. Love isn't something we fall into. Love is someone we become. What are we? We're not alone. Are we living as fully human? Are we living as people of new life? Are we living as God's unique family? And so today, in just a few moments, we get to come to a table together that we hope shapes us. We hope it's a formative thing in our life. In fact, we hope it reminds us of the humanness of Jesus, that he's not just two separate things like spirit and body, but he is uniquely one. We see the humanness in the fact that we eat. It's an activity. It's an act that also reminds us of Christ's divinity. Because in this particular act, we're reminded that we are forgiven. In fact, um, it's also a place that reminds us that we never have to do this alone. Because community is not something we do by ourselves. So even if you're joining us online and you're about to take with us online, that's fine because you're not doing it by yourself. I don't know how to say this well, but like you, you can't take communion at home by yourself without anyone else. It's not communion. I don't know what it is. It's just eating some, some grapes or juice and having a cracker. Because there's something unique about the people of God that we do it together. This is his invitation to come as his unique people to be shaped, to answer the question, what are we shaped by? What are we? And we hope that we are the unique people of God. So just a moment, um, the praise team is going to come and they're going to lead us in a song. And we're going to just have a moment of reflection as we think about who we are and what we are and who we want to become. And so in just a moment, we'll take communion together. And so uh, we pray with me as the praise team comes. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. For the way you invite us to be the unique people of God, that in these moments we get to be your people. And so, Father, as we prepare to sing together, we have this moment of reflection, this invitation to your table, that we're reminded that we are to be shaped and molded and made in your image. And so, Father, we ask that you might do that work in and through us. And so, Father, help us to reflect on what most shapes us and if it's the thing we want to be most shaping in our lives. And, Father, for many of us, as we come to the place to recognize that what is shaping us, we don't, we don't really want to be the primary shaper. That we might lay that down and ask you to begin to do a work in us. And so, Father, we pray all this in your son Jesus' name.